Hello and welcome to the Hashtag Synbio podcast. I'm your host Zishan and today's theme is Computational Synthetic Biology. I'm joined by Douglas Densmore who is a professor of electrical and computer engineering at the Boston University College of Engineering. His research focuses on the development of tools for the specification, design, assembly and test of synthetic biological systems. And I'm really excited to talk to him about the relationship between machine and the synthetic biologist. So let's dive right into this episode. It seems like a lot of labs buy robots that sit gathering dust because robots need a fair bit of babysitting. And most life scientists would rather babysit a cell culture than a robot. How do you see that changing? Well, it's a good question. So I think people that buy robots often have a, a misperception that you're going to buy a robot and it's going to basically replace you. A robot is a complementary piece of hardware to the people in the lab. So what the robot is going to do is the robot is going to do things more replicably, hopefully faster, not only faster in terms of an individual operation, what I would call maybe the latency of the operation, but also how many you can do at once, which I'd call the throughput of the operation. So it's going to, it's a tool. And just like any tool, whether it be a knife or, or a hammer or an axe, or you have to keep your tools in good order. You have to make sure they have the right software. You have to make sure that they're tuned correctly, that they're maintained. And so I think, first of all, people don't understand that relationship. So they get it when it stops working the way they'd want. They give up on it and they move to something else, not thinking about the fact that if they invested the time to keep it running, that could be useful over the long term. So that's one part. The responsibility is on the part of the biologist or the experimentalist to keep that relationship right. But then the flip side is it's also the responsibility of the robotic manufacturers and the automation vendors to make that, to lower those barriers, to make it easier to program these, easier to maintain them, make them more robust and figure out where their failure points are and, and, and make sure that they try to eliminate those. So it's this kind of complex ecosystem. And so, but it's also to the tool analogy, if you have some very specific woodworking piece of equipment and it doesn't work, maybe you're okay. But if your screwdriver breaks, you can't do anything. And so part of this, I think when is going to happen is that our robots need to become more like screwdrivers, meaning that they're more integrated and needed in the process. Because then if they break, no matter what, you're going to have to get them fixed. If you commute every day and your car breaks, you have to get it fixed. But if your motorized skateboard breaks, like, ah, I can, don't have to worry about that. It's not crucial. Yeah. It's these factors, biologist side, vendor side, and then making all of it critical so that it's, it's, the, it's prioritized and urgent. Again, it's just, it's, it's just what you go into the relationship expecting. Yeah. And right now, I think there's a misperception. People think it, they offer lots of benefits, but again, they are something that needs, you need to have a relationship where they're being maintained and taken care of. And there's yeah. also transfer of knowledge. In an academic lab, you have someone who knows how to work the robot, they graduate, and that knowledge transfer never happened. And the next person yeah. is like, I don't know how to use this, and that's how they become a paperweight. Do you think synthetic biologists are generally going to end up needing to learn a bit about the hardware? Like the same way many biologists have, have had to learn how to use like R and other software tools. Like for me, I started out in biochemistry, and I moved more towards bioinformatics, learning, needing to learn Python and R, and biology itself at has transformed a lot into a quantitative field. I think there's a lot more mathematics and computer science than I had hoped for, but I'm really excited to be learning learning computer science. But how about the hardware? Do you think we'll need to learn 
adopt more, I guess, hardware knowledge? The short answer is yeah, yes. Your skills or people's skills are going to evolve and change. And they're gonna and there and there's some things that I think are fundamental that we're gonna keep and some things that are gonna go away. Like I don't know how to use a slide rule, but I imagine an engineer 50 years ago would be very familiar with a slide rule. But we both know how to add. So we both know the fundamental aspects, the adding, the calculus, but our tools are different. And so you can know all the R in the world, all the MATLAB in the world, but if you don't know the math behind what you're trying to program, it's useless. I can be yeah. the awesome, the best robot programmer, but if I don't understand the biological protocol that I'm trying to get implemented. So again, I, it is a tool. So the tool is yeah, changing yeah. and the way you use the tool happens to be programmatic. So you're going to have to change your skill set. Like we're not going to be using like people when they're training, like, like I'm sure I'm not particularly an experimentalist, but there are, there are experimental techniques that are not nearly as prevalent and probably don't need to be run either because now there are kits that do this or machines that do things in a particular way. A robot is another machine and that infrastructure is programmed. If I were talking to young people getting an education, learning a programming language is never a bad thing. Like you're never like, oh, I wish I didn't learn that programming language. <laughs> you need to choose them judiciously, just like if I'm learning a spoken language. I maybe don't want to major in some really like indigenous language in the middle of South America. That's probably not the most useful language, but learning Spanish or French or German, you never really regret that. You're never like, oh, that was a yeah, really yeah. time. Even if you don't use it frequently, it's changed the way you think. And I think programming is the same way. It's, so I would encourage all people to learning some programming. Follow up on the programming questions. What are some of the most common programming languages that you would recommend biologists to learn? I mean, I hear about Python a lot. And I see, you know, when I'm scrolling through the LinkedIn or Facebook, um, the BioPython package is really popular. Even when I'm reading through papers, a lot of tools use BioPython. Would you, I guess it depends on what exactly you're trying to do. But yeah, if you were- a little bit on the flavor of what you're doing. I mean, there are classes of languages. There are some that are compiled. There are some that are interpreted. So the interpreted mm -hmm. languages, these kind of scripting languages that are lightweight and can you can run very quickly and, and you know have a relatively low learning curve, the kind of a minute to learn, lifetime to master kind of thing, are yeah. the Perls, the Pythons, Ruby. Python yeah. is that kind of, is a good one to know. Again, I don't think anyone ever wishes they didn't know yeah. Python. So I think that is a good script. Then there's the more mathematical sides, the MATLABs, the Rs. And then there are kind of the traditional object-oriented programming languages like C, C++, Java, then there are okay. some of the web technologies like JavaScript. I would probably take a look at the research you're interested in doing and look at the computational aspects in that in that field and, and see what they're built on and pick two things. So okay. I think Python is probably a good one. Then I would either pick something like a standard object-oriented language like a Java or C or move to like a web framework like a JavaScript. And some of the, the machines that are present in the lab, so like say like an Opentron's automatic pipetting machine or some other hardware that's used in synthetic biology labs, would they be coded in, I presume, like C or C++, or is that just really depends? Is that too broad of a question? It depends on the, on the instrument. Yeah. And typically the instrument has some kind of graphical interface where you're literally looking at the, what would be called the deck of the robot. Okay. And you're, yeah. you're physically like putting labware places. You're maybe taking a look at the operations the robot can perform. And you can say, and so most of the people that are going to interact with the robotic software are going to do it through the vendor software, which is going to look something like that. 
Okay. Some of the software has what's called an application programming interface or an API that you can then write yep. programs to talk to it. And then that depends on the robot vendor, what libraries they have, et cetera. And that's when you're getting more advanced. What's nice okay. though, is that often the, the, gra- the kind of intermediate is that the graphical inputs might take, they have a plate that you're gonna use on the robot. And that plate's population is represented by like an Excel sheet. So what the programming comes as a hybrid, you write a software program in Perl outside that generates the Excel files or the comma separated value files, the CSV files. Yep. You do something that's generating that, then they feed that into the software. So it's kind of this hybrid where you're writing some script yeah. that produce the files that are consumed by the main software. That's probably, that's a real common use pattern. Yeah, all right, that makes sense. So moving on to the next question, do you think automation is going to end up making synthetic bio more centralized the way DNA synthesis now happens? Or will we instead have a robot on every bench? That's a good question. I don't think we're going to have a robot in every bench. If I had to choose, I would say it's going to be more centralized. Because it's just back to my first point about the relationship between the human and the robot. There's a relationship that needs to be maintained, <laughs> updated. It's the same reason we don't see servers on every desk. Yeah, so computers yeah, yeah, got yeah. better, and it wasn't now that everyone has Amazon on their desk. It's no, it's become a more centralized <laughs> model because maintaining a data warehouse is costly. No one really cares about where their data is. They just want it to be a reliable, available, archived. And I think yeah. that'll often be the case with the biology. Like, I don't really need to pipette. That's not like what I'm enjoying. I'm not enjoying picking <laughs> uh, I'm enjoying the results. And so, I th- and so I think it will become more centralized because also the, it'll become prohibitive to maintain and, and do the equipment. So this is where these cloud labs become interesting. What's the business model behind them and how that works? I think the other thing about yeah. them becoming centralized is it democratizes the field a little bit. Like if I'm a, like my background is electrical engineering. I don't really want to run a lab. Running a lab is not particularly fun. You fill out a lot of safety paperwork and have to maintain things and keep inventories. I, I just kind of want to do the, the research. And so yeah. I think a lot, of, a lot of people that are on the fringes that aren't traditionally experimentalists that want to get involved in a centralized infrastructural work. That being said, computing has this where it's not everyone has, but if you want to have a server, you can have one. So I think it'll yeah. be a mix. The people who want to do particular things will have a robot on their desk, but I think the majority of folks that aren't particularly interested in that will go to a centralized model. The, the barrier right now is just the flavors of what's offered in a centralized model. Mm. Like everyone wants their own quote unquote flavor and no one quite does it the way you want. So then you're like, I'm just going to do it in house. My sense is that one barrier to lab automation being adopted and more people using foundry style setups is that biology uh, isn't very standardized. Uh, so it's very hard to like hand off your process to someone else and, you know, have it recreated. I think you would agree with that statement and, or do you think other barriers would be, are more important? I think the standardization is a big part. It's, it's the standardization of the data and the experiments. That's part of it. I think there's a big difference between like exploratory research and production research. So the exploratory research is mm. when you're trying this new thing and you want to tinker with this, and then you really don't know what I'm doing on Wednesday because I haven't figured out what happened on Monday. So <laughs> it is this dynamic process. Yeah. But then at some point you figure out what you're trying to do and you want to ramp up the production of it. So some of these facilities might be for commercial entities. Like I may be a computational biology company, but I don't, I want to make a product, but I don't want to have my own lab, my own factory to spin some of this up. So I might use a cloud lab to spin up some initial production until I get somewhere. Mm -hmm. So 
once you know what you're doing, I think these services could be really useful. And then like now I have standardized it into this service. This happens even in, in the semiconductor industry. Like when you're ready to make your chip, you don't, you don't make your chip. You test it. There's a series of simulation, both hardware and software. Like there's software simulation and hardware emulation that happen at a place like Intel before you actually make the chip because it costs yeah, a lot. Yeah. And so I think there's going to be the same kind of back and forth where there's some kind of prototyping. And then when you're ready, you'll use these external services. But there, there, will, be need, there will be need to be standards. Also, the big point, last point I'll make in this rant is people <laughs> also have to be ready to accept like the standard. Like when I go to McDonald's, that, I don't love all the things about McDonald's, but you don't go in there with really exotic orders. <laughs> like you don't go in and say, I want four patties and then hold this and do that. When you go, to, you're expecting a certain experience. And you, yeah, and, okay. and it's the same with standard. Like when I go in, I get this menu of services and I'm not trying to tweak it and get all exotic. Cause I know if I do that, it's, it's fundamentally going to break. Like if you do that at McDonald's, you know, they're going to get your order wrong. Like you're like, something is going to go wrong. They're not used to that. That's not, you go somewhere else for this. Like, I think the foundries will be very similar. Like you go in there and you order off the menu and you get a very consistent, reliable experience. And you can do that for 70% of what you do. And the other 30%, you have to do more exotic stuff. What do you see happening with lab automation outside of really highly resourced labs and countries? I mean, we've sort of touched on this with standardization, but any other barriers? That's kind of the pro for centralization. Yeah. Democratization that, you know, like everyone's not going to have the $100,000 to $500,000 robot. Like that's just not even forget that. I mean, let's say you do get that. Let's say you win the lottery and get that. But then you have the $30,000 every couple of year service contract. So eventually, you can't, eventually that's how it becomes a paperweight. So that's why the centralization is going to be key. That way the lab, like in the developing world could say, you know, I, they're in my demographic or in my geographic rather area, there are cloud facilities I can work with that are regulated, that are secure, that are, you know, they're doing things around biosafety and bioethics that also helps centralize those, some of those concerns. Instead of having a bunch of people going rogue and, and doing different things, we have centralized <laughs> yeah, yeah logged repositories of people setting designs. They don't have to maintain the equipment. They get data back. We work on material transfer agreements that we can get that. So I think that's going to help. We have the same problem even in 2021 with computing still though. It's like in the pandemic, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, like yeah. naively you might think, oh, online classes, how hard can that be? Everyone's got the internet and you realize everyone's got the internet in 2021. So what are some of your favorite robots in synthetic biology at Boston University, either in your lab or in, in like this. Oh, I thought you were going to ask me for my favorite robots because I have this great slide of 80s robots, like the robot from Rocky. Th- Actually, uh, let's Rocky start with Four, that. I think. What's the uh, favorite robot? Birthday Polly robot and uh, <laughs> Johnny Five robot and the Rob robot from the Nintendo Entertainment System. So oh, yeah, I have yeah. some favorite robots. Again, I think all of the robots do a good job of being robots. Where they differ is that interface, how you're programming them, that each of them have different software, which have different pros and cons. Most That's back to the democratization aspect. Like most of these robots I have gotten as a university professor where the university has a relationship with that vendor and is able to ne- negotiate deals and costs. So if I'm just Joe Average, like getting one of these robots, you, you need that having that relationship with a vendor is really important. The robots today are pretty... In general, they're pretty robust and, and, and well put together. I've said this to everyone that right now, uh, it's an unfortunate time for, because of the COVID pandemic. But if you're into biology and the engineering and biology, this is 
potentially really important time where the public is hyper aware of biology's effect on our lives. Like everyone, like from grandma to toddler, everyone knows biology affects you. And we can all as a society think about ways in which understanding biology could be used to prevent situations like this in the past, the speed up things like vaccines, therapeutics, testing, biologically robust solutions to a lot of our challenges. So I think as a community, we should really seize on this moment and and communicate and educate the public. 